All right. Well, I've been trying to teach my kids and at the at the church here to to extend the season of Easter. Easter is a a 50-day season uh, starting on Easter Sunday. So today is the third Sunday of Easter. And we we show that by having things like the white tablecloth, which means it's a high season of Easter. We sing resurrection-type songs about the victory of Christ and how he has risen and now reigns over all things. And it strikes me that if, if it's true that Jesus rose, if it's true that he ascended into heaven and now reigns and rules over us, then whether or not we believe it, whether we recognize it, whether we experience it, it's true. But isn't it so much better in life if we do believe it, if we do experience it, and if we do recognize it in our own lives? How do we experience Jesus when we can't see him? How do we relate to him when he doesn't talk to us in the same way that we can talk to each other? And how do we have hope and faith when the world around us, let alone so many aspects of my life and your interior life and our relationships are under conflict and tension on a consistent basis? Knowledge of scripture and history, of course, is important, but by itself that doesn't form a relationship. Practicing the sacraments and submitting to the proclamation of God's word are essential, life-giving Christian necessities, but by themselves, they won't nurture intimacy with God. Christian community and service together are non-negotiable activities that help us be formed in the way of Jesus, but without a relationship with the life-giver, those practices will lead to burnout and frustration. So how is it? that you and I are supposed to connect with the risen Jesus when he's not here in the flesh anymore? How are we supposed to grow in him and be known by him? Well, you know the answer to this question, if for no other reason you looked at the front of your bulletin. It's prayer, right? Prayer. If you look at any Christian sister or brother from history, whether it's Mother Teresa or Martin Luther Uh, St. Augustine, Henry Nouwen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, anyone who's had a fruitful ministry, if you read their biography, if you read their writings, you know two things are true about them. One is they had a vibrant prayer life. The other thing is that they struggled with their prayer life. If you look at any fruitful person, now I named all like the saints and the doctors of the church, right? But if you look at any fruitful person in their life, like Betty Lou Wheeler, who was my grandmother who passed away a couple years ago. 80 plus years of faithfulness. I have a friend in Chicago whose mother has broken kneecaps from spending so many years on her knees in prayer. Her home is a place of fruitfulness, of Christian joy. She's not a saint. If I didn't mention her, you'd never know about her. But the point is that that a fruitful life is often tied to a a prayerful life. Problem is that we all struggle with consistency in prayer. I do. Maybe you can relate to that. And this evening, I want to share a passage of scripture with you that has been one of the most encouraging for me uh, in the area of prayer. And I hope that it's just as encouraging for you. Um, Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, 
just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Imagine one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Lord, thank you for the gift of prayer, for the gift of access to the Father. And thank you for this teaching that shows us what the Father is like. May this take root in our hearts and affect and transform the way we relate to you. Amen. You may be seated. It is easy to forget that Jesus was fruitful in his ministry because he stayed connected to the Father through a life of prayer. Scripture tells us that Jesus is part of the triune Godhead. He has always existed, and he was the agent through whom and for whom all things were created. On top of that, we now worship him as Savior and King, the one who is victorious over death and now reigns over all things. But let's not forget that part of Jesus' story is that he emptied himself. And he came to earth enfleshed as a human being. He made himself vulnerable. He was susceptible to sickness and loneliness and temptation, susceptible to rejection, fatigue, and the swings of human emotions. Does anyone relate to that? The scriptures go so far as to tell us that Jesus was tempted in every way you and I are tempted, but without sin. Now, how did Jesus live such a fruitful life? How did he maintain his belief that he was the beloved of the Father, that he was the Father's agent, that he was making the right choices? He prayed. He prayed. He didn't fake it. He really needed to pray. And just so that you don't think Jesus faked it, like when a parent lets their kid win at a game to stoke their ego, like Jesus isn't just telling us to pray and pretending to pray to give us an example that we'll follow when he really didn't need that stuff. Recall that before Jesus chose the 12, he spent a night up on a mountaintop and prayed. It was through the prayer he he sought discernment of who to choose to be his disciples. And when he was exhausted from ministry, he retreated and prayed to the Father. 
And when he made decisions about which towns to minister in and when he should move on, it was an understanding from the Father that he gained in prayer that told him when to do these things. And how was it that he was able to endure the physical pain and emotional rejection and spiritual isolation of the cross? It's the rigorous, pleading prayer to his Father. If Jesus is a man of prayer, then you and I would do well to become people of prayer. Now, in our story in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was, surprise, surprise, praying. He's praying in the opening part of our story. And his disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. It's not that the disciples of Jesus didn't know how to pray. I mean, these guys were Jewish men. They'd grown up praying. Uh, Their request, though, was most likely uh, motivated by two things. The first is that they wanted Jesus to teach them to pray like John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray. John the Baptist, like so many other Jewish rabbis and teachers, likely taught his disciples a specific prayer. Many scholars point out that by giving custom prayers to their disciples, Jewish rabbis helped form group identity amongst their disciples. It was a badge of honor to get to pray the prayer of John the Baptist. It marked those disciples of John the Baptist out as different from the other disciples. It was a badge of honor to learn the prayer of Gamaliel or Shodmai or any of these other famous, well-known teachers. And Jesus' disciples probably wanted a prayer like that from Jesus. And in many ways, that has taken shape, hasn't it? In, in many churches around the world, the Lord's Prayer is recited every single Sunday when people gather for worship. And we do it every once in a while uh, in our own worship gathering. But the second reason I think that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray is because of the quality of Jesus' praying. The disciples weren't ignorant of how to pray. In fact, They had all the psalms at their disposal. They had the Shema. They had dozens of liturgical prayers that they would recite in synagogue and had learned from other teachers and possibly their parents. What they did not have was the type of relationship that Jesus was displaying to his Father. And so they ask what each of us is really asking deep down in our hearts. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus answers their question with three questions clear ways. Here they are, if you're a note taker. Number one, he gives us a structure for prayer. He gives us a clear structure for prayer. The second thing he gives us is he gives us content for prayer, like the actual words. And the third thing he gives us is encouragement to pray. And we're going to go ahead and break down each one of these as we walk through this text together. Let's start with structure. When I look at this congregation, and even when I think about the people who aren't here right now but are part of this congregation, I see dozens of personality types, lots of different church experiences that you had before coming into this congregation. You've got different dispositions and different worship styles that you are attracted to or repelled from. Some of you love the idea of structure. You thrive in a liturgical environment. And others of you like a more free-flowing experience, extemporaneous worship. And I'm not convinced that there's a right or a wrong way, but what I will say is I think uh, followers of Christ need a little bit of both to be healthy and well-balanced. 
For those who lean toward the written and liturgical styled prayers, we need to be careful that our well-thought-out words and our theological uh, meaty prayers have some heart behind them because it's real easy to get lost in the words. And for those who are more prone to be conversational with God or offering up emotional, heartfelt prayers, we need to make sure that we're praying to the God of Scripture, not the God of our own emotions and desires. And I think it's significant that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gives us a structure. I don't think he gives us a structure to limit our prayers as if saying you can't pray any other way but this way, but I think he gives us a structure to help jumpstart our prayers, to help give give us some kind of form. You know, sometimes when I work with people who are deeply depressed or uh, people who are in deep grief, and maybe you felt this way before in your life, you just can't get out of bed. It's too overwhelming. And sometimes the best first step, the best even pastoral advice isn't something super spiritual. It's can you make your bed this morning? Because if you can make your bed, you've checked one thing off the list. You've been successful at something that doesn't take great emotional energy or great effort. If you can make your bed, you might be able to do the next thing, which is put your clothes on. And the next thing, and we just check the simple things off the list. If you've ever been in a season in your life where you don't know where to start with prayer, Jesus gives us a structure like making our bed. Just turn to the Lord's prayer as a place to start. The second thing is that Jesus gives us content. He actually gives us words to pray. If you've ever been burdened by, I don't even know if I'm praying the right stuff. Are my prayers too selfish? Are they too otherworldly? Well, you can start here because Jesus actually gives us words. I don't think it's a sin to pray the words Jesus said to pray. Puts us on good footing. And I want to say this, that this sermon is not a breakdown of the Lord's Prayer. Um, If you want that, look online on their sermons in Matthew chapter 6. I did a week by week for every verse of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's version, which is more robust than this one, more, more verses and so forth, if you want to geek out on all of that. Just a quick aside too, why are there two different versions of the Lord's Prayer and why is Luke slightly different? It's been said that every preacher has one sermon. <laughs> and We just preach about different stuff in different ways all the time. And many of you who are teachers probably have your, your favorite things that you like to talk about. And Jesus was a prayer. And I think that Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer multiple times in his ministry. He does it on the Sermon on the Mount. He does it here in this setting. Whether or not Luke got it a little different, little snippets than, than Matthew got, or whether it's two different teachings, neither of them contradict each other. And they just, um, they just support each other. So anyway, we're not going to go into uh, too much detail in each verse, but I, wanna, I, I just want to give a flyover of the content that Jesus gives us. First of all, this prayer reshapes our perspective. We live, and I don't know, I'm not so the pastor that loves to get down on our generation. I think every human generation has probably lived in a me-first world to some degree, but we live in a me-first world. And in a me-first world, it's easy to start prayer with, I'm feeling, or I want. And what, what Jesus does is has us start with the Father. And approaching him as a father, not just this distant God, but as Abba, Father, someone who's approachable. 
And the first thing he has us pray for is that the Father's name would be hallowed, which is a fancy way of saying known for who he really is in the world. So sometimes when I pray that line, that stanza, my prayer is literally, Father, thank you that I can approach you as Father. And I pray that I and our church and our community and the world would know your character for what it really is over and against the character that the media's made out about you or that I falsely preached about you by accident or that our culture has said that you are about. What we really need is the real God to show up and to know his real character and the real fame of his name. And that's what that stands is about. Hallow your name, Father. Why ask God to hallow his own name? Because we're pretty shoddy at it. We need him to do it. And it's okay to ask him to do that. Father, hallow your name. And then Jesus says that we are to ask that the, that, that the Father would bring his kingdom. That his kingdom, his rule, his reign would rest on this place over and against my rule and my will and my reign where those two things are in contradiction. Over and against the reign of local government, over and against the reign of America, over and against the reign of all governments and worldly ideas that are against the will of God. And when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, you know, you can, you can do a little jazz prayer, I guess you could say. You can riff off of these main lines. We have a line there that says, pray your kingdom come. Well, what would that actually mean? I'll tell you what it would mean. Here's some ideas. Justice. True shalom. That's where we have what we need and our neighbors have what they need. True shalom. True healing. Do you have someone in your life who's sick or hurting in the kingdom of God? There's healing. So you can, you, can, you can use this line as a launch pad for so many other prayers. God, may your kingdom come. And next, we're taught to pray for daily provision. And not just my daily provision. Notice all of the verbs here. This is all in the second person plural. You can't pray this prayer selfishly. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what Jesus says to pray. Not give me my own little piece of the pie. It includes you and me as individuals, but it's for everyone. Give us our daily bread. And oftentimes in um, that word bread in Greek and also in Hebrew thought, it's not just, it is bread, it's food. Food is important. Jesus multiplies food in the Bible to give people real bread. But it also means everything that people need to thrive. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we might think, we might pray that prayer alongside the Bellingham Herald where we're looking at the new homeless shelter that might get built over at the old, um, the old building by the municipal courthouse. Because shelter is daily bread for people who don't have shelter. And we might pray that the kingdom would come so that people's minds would be opened up about how we think about that issue because as a person on the neighborhood board, I'm seeing it from both sides. Oh, this is going to make our property values go down or oh, this is the best thing in the world. And nobody wants it in their own backyard. So where do we put these kind of things? We need the kingdom and we need daily bread. Daily bread is relationships for the lonely, 
Daily bread is love for those who feel unlovely. Daily bread is safety in people's homes where you know there's abuse going on. Daily bread is what are the basic foundations of what it means to thrive as a human being. So if you like extemporaneous prayer, you just take this structure and you take these words and you start riffing off of it because these daily bread and the kingdom of God stuff can just go in all kinds of directions. It's glorious. Pray, um, we pray these things, daily bread in particular, because it helps us remember that we're dependent on God. As a person who, when I walk into my pantry, it's full of things, and when I look at my fridge, it's overflowing with things, and my freezer, I can barely, they never take the air out of the bags, the kids. I gotta teach them that, because there's a lot of air in the bags, but it drives me crazy. (laughs) I've got stuff. I don't, feel like I need to pray for daily bread every day. But when I come to that stanza, what I do is I say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to worry about my bread today. And I still recognize I need you. Because, you guys, we are so on a precipice in reality. I've got lots of stuff, but a fire is gone. I get really sick. I can't work. I mean, we we really don't have that many buffers as we think we do, right? Life's really fragile. And so it's just a reminder, Lord, I need you. Would you provide this for me tomorrow? And finally, we admit our weakness. Um, We seek forgiveness of our sin debt. And it reminds us that since we receive forgiveness from the Father for our sins, we ought to be forgiving toward other people. We forgive their debt. And I love how Jesus, in this version of the Lord's Prayer, he uses in the same sentence, in in, in a parallel, he uses one word for sin, and he uses another word for debt. And he's not using them in opposition. In our, our thinking, we think sin is spiritual or ethical, and we think debt is financial, right? But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's he's lumping it all up. He's lumping it all up. Like, like debt is, it, you're, you're, uh, if you're over your head in financial debt, that's a spiritual problem. It affects who we are, right? And in relational debt, it might not be a sin thing, but you might be at odds with a family member, or you might be at odds with a friend, and it's just this great debt that someone's got to pay in between you. And we could be praying into those relationships. That's, that's what this verse can mean. It's great. And then finally, we pray, um, we pray for help, and we admit our weakness, and we pray for mercy from testing, and we, because we know, don't we know that when we're tempted, we often fail? Don't we know that when we're faced with some of those points in our lives that are, are difficult to resist, we oftentimes, far too often, choose, choose the way of the flesh than the way of God? And it's okay to ask him for help. He tells us to ask for help. Lord, help us. So Jesus gives us structure. He gives us a place to start. And he gives us some content from which we can pray almost anything that we have to pray about. But the third thing is, and I think the power of this particular passage is in Jesus' encouragement. There are hundreds, there are thousands, guys, books about prayer how to pray, techniques, styles, words, methods, 
A technique is rarely my problem in prayer. Is it really your problem in prayer? Like, I just gave you the structure and the content, so it's not your problem anymore. Let me just say it that way. Our problem is usually rooted in the fact that we wonder if there's anyone out there who's hearing us in the first place. And if they do hear us, if God does hear us, does he really care? And yeah, I can even get my mind around the fact that he cares for you or for other people, but does he really care about me and the little things that are in my life or the things that I've screwed up so many times? Has he grown out of patience for me? And so Jesus addresses this through two parables that reveal the heart of the one to whom we pray. And the first parable is one that's often called by, I don't know who does this, but the friend at midnight. It's, Jesus doesn't name the parable. It's not in the original text, but people call it that. And it's often been misinterpreted as a parable that teaches the practice of persistence in prayer. I'm not saying that persistence in prayer is bad. I'm just saying quite clearly, and this might give you cognitive dissonance, so I'm going to say it as clearly as possible, this passage, in my interpretation, isn't about persistence in prayer. What it appears to say, and what I've been taught on numerous occasions, is that this passage tells us that God really doesn't want to hear our prayers, because he's like the guy inside the house who's asleep with his kid. But if we bug him enough, if we're persistent enough, we'll wear him down, and he'll concede. That interpretation doesn't hold up against the rest of the passage. You just read it in context. It doesn't make any sense. Especially the part where God gives good gifts to his children. It strikes me as strange and contradictory. And the meaning of the passage takes a little work to get behind. So I would love it if you had your Bibles out and are looking at this with me. And we're going we're gonna to look at two things that make it difficult to get under. And this is, you know, I wish every part of interpreting the Bible was just super easy. It's not. It's an ancient text. You would never read Dante without some kind of help. I wouldn't. <laughs> I didn't know the political situation going on. I don't know the language. I don't know Latin very well. So I read Dante next to things. I, I wouldn't read the, the Iliad or the Odyssey without some help, right? And so this is one of those passages that we just need a little help. And I, I want to help us through it. So we're going to look at the cultural differences on one of the most important social values of Jesus' day that relies to this, uh, this passage is showing hospitality. It still is in many parts of the world. If a visitor came to your house, you were expected to house them and to feed them and to entertain them and to introduce them as a person of honor. And most of all, if you did that, you shared your home and your house and your hospitality, you were to protect them. If you think back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the sin against those cities. Where those visitors were under the protection of Lot and his family. Lot had shown these visitors hospitality. And these mob of people came to show inhospitality. They were, they were breaking this, this, this law. Now there's one more thing. Hospitality wasn't just an individual value that people had. It was a communal value. It was a communal responsibility. Every single person knew it in these villages, and they all played by the rules. So the host in our story seems to need more bread. Not because he doesn't have any bread necessarily, but because what he had probably wasn't fresh. 
It would be insulting to offer this, this visitor, this guest, day-old bread. And so what he had to do was find out who had made the bread most recently, which wouldn't be a problem in a little village like they had in the first century. In typical villages, such as the one in our story, women would bake bread every few days. And you have to appreciate that in this time period, the average size village was six acres. That's, that's not big. Six acres. And people had uh, communal places where they baked. Um, appliances were communal possessions. People didn't have ovens in their houses. In fact, Jen, let's see this picture here. This is a picture actually of Pompeii. But the stuff in Pompeii is just so well preserved. So Corey and I were touring here one time, and you can see uh, the conical-shaped thing and the one behind it. Those are ancient mills. Um, the one in the foreground is just incomplete, but the, the one behind it with the square piece on it, you pour the, the grain in and turn it with two, uh, two rods, and it would grind the mill. And then right behind it, you see the oven. This is in uh, the center of Pompeii. It's the communal oven where people would come. So the women would come and grind together. It's a community event. And then they bake the bread together. So you, you know. So this, the visitor comes to this man's house. His wife says, we don't have any bread. We ate it up. I know who's got bread. I saw Susie make a bunch of bread. And uh, she's probably got leftover. Go to George's house. I don't know. That's George, Susie's husband. And knock on the door. See if we can have some bread. Thank you, Jen. So the man goes to his friend at midnight. He fully expects to get bread after all. It's a community responsibility to entertain this guest. Furthermore, bread is just the baseline request. It's the most humble of what this man will ask other neighbors that same night. Because bread wasn't the main part of the meal. It was like silverware. It's, if you've had Indian food... It's, this, it's a similar thing. You take the naan, you rip off a piece, you use the naan to dip into the dal or to whatever, the butter chicken. Oh, I love the butter chicken. Uh, to, and, and you eat that, and then you eat the silverware, right? You eat the bread, then you need another piece. That's exactly what we're talking about here. So this man's going to have to borrow probably other parts of the meal as well. It's a communal thing. No doubt, this host is going around to other neighbors as well, asking for the more expensive parts of the dinner. And you see, in a culture where hospitality is expected and where it's a communal expectation, asking for bread was the most humble of requests no matter what time of night. Now, failure of the friend to meet the host's humble request for bread would have dishonored his name, his kid's name, his father's name, and the village's name. This visitor would have left the next day and said, that village of Bellingham, a bunch of lowlifes. I show up, they didn't even give me a decent meal. And you'll never believe it. This guy, he said he's too tired to get up and give me bread. It's crazy. It just would never happen. Now, with that in mind, let's look at two areas where knowledge of language is a little helpful. First of all, verse 5 in the Greek is actually a question. So it goes something like this. Jesus begins his parable with a statement. Can you imagine a scenario like this? And Jesus says, can you, uh, yeah, can you imagine a scenario where this guy goes to the door and his friend doesn't want to wake up because his kids are asleep? People would just be like, no, I can't imagine that. That's comical. Jesus is using a common style of illustration during his day where he, he proposes a situation 
that's so common to everyday life, but then he twists it to the point of absurdity, all with the point of making an impression. I was thinking about hospitality, and I was thinking like, um, a lot of you know Dan Trollson, right? I know Dan's down in the nursery today. Dan, I mean, he just exudes hospitality, and if you've ever been to one of the places he's managed, he's at Northwater right now. If you go to Northwater, and, you know, if Dan's around and he sees you at Northwater, he comes over to the table, how's everything going? I mean, it just, now, has any, have you, you had that experience where Dan has been around you in a restaurant? Okay. Tommy, can you imagine a scenario where you and Morgan are out to a nice dinner and Dan comes over and your food is burnt and he says, I don't care. I mean, you just laughed. I mean, it's comical. It's insane. It would have to be a different person. A bizarro Dan. This is a bizarro, <laughs> this would be a bizarro village for a person to re- to reject that request of bread at midnight. Do you see the force of what I'm saying? And so Jesus is asking the question, can you imagine a scenario like this? No. And then the punchline, and this is the one where language really comes into play, is in verse 8. And it hinges on a mistranslation of a word called anaideon. Sometimes translated as persistence, which most Bibles have gotten right now. Um, I think you guys are in the, got this NIV here. So in Luke 11, in this NIV, yeah, thanks. Okay, so he says, I tell you, even though uh, he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity. Now here, here's the problem with that translation. That word your is not there in the Greek. And so these translators had to make a decision on who, whose shamelessness are they talking about? Is it the man in the house with his kids, or is it the friend who's knocking on the door? There's no, there's no your in the Greek text, so you have to know what to do with that. Some translators have made that decision partly because of tradition. It's sad to me to say that. We have so bought into the idea that this passage is about persistence of the prayer and that God is somehow the man inside the house, that it's forced, okay, it's a 50-50 choice, I'm not sure where to put shamelessness, I'm going to make it for the man on the door. Kenneth Bailey, John, Joel Green, not John Green, he's funny, but, uh, but Joel Green, Husso Gonzalez, these are all scholars who are pointing in a different direction, and I, I, I reference Bailey in particular because Bailey has spent 40 years in the Middle East as a New Testament scholar, has studied the this language um, inside and out, and makes the strong case that it is not the man who is in the, uh, the man knocking on the door who's shameless and audacious. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that even if the guy inside the house doesn't feel like getting up because his kids are asleep, he's going to do it anyway because of his shamelessness. He doesn't want to bring shame upon his name and upon his village. He's going to get up and give you the bread. The story doesn't work if it's the other way. Because if the dude has to knock all night and be shamelessly audacious, it's already a ridiculous scenario. You would never imagine. If you had to beg Dan to get you a new meal because your stuff was burnt over and over again, it still wouldn't be the right Dan. Dan doesn't do that. 
People in these villages didn't not get up to give you bread when a stranger comes to town. So it's the shamelessness that's motivating the man in the house to get up and give the bread. The punchline then goes like this. It's midnight. The man's children are asleep. He doesn't want to get up to give the man bread. But because he will not bring shame upon his name or upon his village, of course, he'll get up and give the bread. And will he just give him bread? No. Read the Bible. Read that passage. He gives him more than the bread. He will give the man as much as he needs, everything for the meal. Jesus is saying, the God you pray to, the one you're overhearing me call Father in my prayers, is now the one I'm telling you to call Father. And he has every bit as much honor and integrity as the man in the story, more than the man in the story, and more than the man in the story, this Father loves you. He's not just motivated by shamelessness. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't feel like I want to pray. If I'm really honest, sometimes I don't feel much love toward God. It comes and goes, hot and cold. And sometimes I feel apathetic. And this parable gives me hope and confidence in approaching God. That a humble request for bread is met by everything that this man needs. And it gives me confidence that when you and I come to God with what little requests we can muster up, that he meets us with an overabundance because he's that good. Reminds me of a second grade experience I had at Hoquiam Elementary School. Right before Christmas break, they had a small gift shop in the school library where they had all of these kind of trinkets and things like that. And so, I mean, second grade, I had to get money from my parents to buy my parents gifts. It's just what you do in second grade. And so I'm there, I buy these wooden spoons for my mom. It was a pack of three, three different lengths. I'm not sure why I bought wooden spoons. I think because she was cooked for us, so I thought she would like wooden spoons. The irony is, of course, I'm incapable of buying my own mother this gift. She gives me the money so I can buy a gift, which I wasn't even thinking about, that she would then use to serve me meals. <laughs> just really ironic, and I think the really sickly ironic part is I'm pretty sure I received the other end of those spoons at certain times in my life. <laughs> Bought my own, uh, my own death warrant there. But my point is, it's, it's, it's humbling to, to think that I can't even find it in myself Sometimes to approach the God who loves me, I I can't even fight it in myself sometimes to love the God who died for me. But I believe God wants our honest, repentant hearts more than he wants a bunch of people who feel like they don't know him, so why bother? Or don't need him. The story tells me that the secret to how to pray is not found in a technique. It's found in knowing the extravagant love of the God to whom we pray. That's motivating to me. So in light of this great news, the passage says, ask and seek and knock. These are called conditional imperatives. I won't bore you with what that means, but it means this, that you don't have to ask a certain number of times before God will answer you. It means to live as one who comes to God often and seeks his face because the God you seek is the God who answers generously. Move to verse 11, and it's the same Greek structure as 5. Can you imagine a scenario 
Or one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish, and you give him a snake? No way. Of course not. Can you imagine a scenario where your son or daughter asks you for an egg and you give them a poisonous scorpion? That's ridiculous. No, I cannot imagine it. Now, if you think it's normal for fallen, imperfect, sinful human fathers to give their children good gifts, how much more, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the one who reminds us of our adoption into God's family, the one who teaches us, helps us become more like Christ, the one who equips every follower of Jesus so that they can participate in the kingdom of God and the building of his church. How much more? The Lord teaches us to pray. He gives us structure when we don't know where to start. He gives us words to pray. And he encourages us to pray because our Father is more loving and more generous than even the best social conventions and family kindness that we can imagine. So in light of that, I think there's only thing one left to do. We should pray.